everyone, it's Krista Bontrager, and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast, where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go. Well, it winds from Genesis to today. More than 4,000 years all the way. George John Dicks on Route 66. Hey, everyone. Congratulations. You've made it to week 22 of our Route 66 campaign through the Bible. This week, we'll be finishing up the book of Nehemiah, reading through the entire book of Esther, and starting the poetry books. We'll be getting a good start in the book of Job. Last week, you read through the first half of Nehemiah. We'll be picking up the action in Nehemiah chapter 8. And this section of Nehemiah really overlaps nicely with the book of Ezra. So we'll be revisiting some of the events and some of the themes that we already covered in the book of Ezra. Chapter 8 kind of marks a turning point in the book of Nehemiah. The wall's been rebuilt and Ezra publicly reads the law, which would have probably been the book of Deuteronomy. And this in turn starts a revival. The reading of the law is followed by the Israelites confessing their sins and turning back to the Lord, recounting their history through the Exodus and renewing their covenant with God. One of the things I find fascinating about this section is that so many times we hear these days of people wanting revival Revival in the Bible always begins with the reading of Scripture itself. So many times these days, I hear pastors summarizing Scripture, alluding to Scripture, talking around Scripture, but very, very seldom in churches these days do we spend quality time reading the Scriptures out loud. Sometimes we might hear a verse or two during a sermon But the way that the scriptures were written originally was to read large sections at a time and allowing people to digest those large sections so they could really get the flow of thought. And when we read from scripture, God promises that he will be in that his word will not return to us void. And then that reading of the scriptures in turn is what leads to the confession of sin. If we want revival, That's the biblical formula, the public reading of the scriptures and the confession of sin. We're going to have some more lists in Nehemiah chapters 10 and 11 and 12. Just a lot of lists of who's in the land, who's reestablishing the covenant. And then finally, the book of Nehemiah wraps up with a dedication of the wall surrounding Jerusalem and some final reforms from Nehemiah. There's a brief period where he leaves and immediately the people start relapsing into sin. He returns and reestablishes order and again initiates a revival and brings them back to repentance. Later in the week, we're going to hit the book of Esther. The book of Esther is so famous 
And I thought it might be helpful to share a few thoughts about the book of Esther, this very unique book in scripture. The book of Esther actually is the foundation for a Jewish holiday called Purim. And it's a day when children dress up almost as if they're going out for Halloween. They put on colorful masks and and the rabbi reads the ancient story. And as he does, there's raucous cheers and, and boos whenever he talks about Haman. And it's also a day when they enjoy a lot of wine and sweets and just it's a fun holiday celebrating the book of Esther. And it's such an interesting book because scholars kind of debate what what sort of genre of literature is this? Many scholars believe that it's some sort of ironic comedy, that it's comedy cloaked in a tragedy and there's these great reversals. And so it really lends itself to the kinds of revelry that Jews celebrate on the Feast of Purim. The book of Esther is a story of God's people when they are away from the land. That's one of the most important things to understand about the book of Esther. They're in a foreign land. They're away from the promised land. So there's no temple. There's no priests. There's no sacrifices. Basically, there's no way for them to get forgiveness of their sins. And yet, it seems that God has not forgotten his people. Even though the name of God is never mentioned explicitly in the book of Esther, he is seen traditionally as kind of working behind the scenes, pulling the strings, and saving his people. And really, one of the questions here is, how are the Jews going to survive and even thrive when they are away from their land? How will they keep their food laws What will be done for them in lieu of sacrifices? Has God abandoned his people? What does it even mean to be Jewish when you're living away from the land and there is no temple and there are no sacrifices and there are no priests? And how are Jews to to interact with pagan culture? Both Daniel and Esther deal with how Jews kind of navigated these tricky waters and they served as role models for later Jews who lived in the diaspora, they lived scattered around the ancient world away from the land of Israel. So Esther is a story of exile. She and her relative Mordecai are exiled Jews. They are people of faith, but they are living in a land that is foreign. Now the story of Esther is set during a time of kind of some transition. The reign of Cyrus has come to an end. He defeated the Babylonians and some of the Jews have begun returning to their homeland. But Esther and Mordecai have stayed in the Persian Empire. Then they are actually living in Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire during the reign of King Xerxes. Now, one of the more fascinating aspects of Esther is its historical rootedness. King Xerxes, we know from archaeology, was a real person. And there are so many little tiny details in the text that seem to be corroborated by external sources. So even though history doesn't corroborate the existence of Esther, at least not that we have found yet, 
there are facets of the story which can be corroborated by external sources. Now, it was quite the common practice for women to just be taken into the harem of the king. It was also the common practice at that time. It was known that Xerxes would capture up to 500 young boys a year to be castrated and serve as eunuchs in the Persian court. So the fact that he rounds up a bunch of young virgins to become part of his harem and to basically try out a night with him to become the queen is not far-fetched at all. Esther would have really had very little choice about her situation. She would have been taken into the harem as a fairly young virgin. The chances of her defying either her male guardian, Mordecai, or even worse, the Persian Empire and the, the, the Persian authorities are just incredibly slim. And then one thing that we definitely know from the Book of Esther is that Queen Vashti's refuses to obey the king's command to basically become a showcase at a drunken party. I'm sure that Esther was aware of that, and she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that women who directly oppose the male power structures will simply be banished. So we have very little evidence here that she would defy those power structures. Rather, she had to learn how to navigate them and figure out how she would work from behind the scenes in order to work within that patriarchal system, but to her advantage rather than oppose it. And it certainly would have been a difficult position for her to navigate as a young Jewish girl, knowing that she would be put in a position of sexual compromise as a result of the king's edict. It's hard for us just to even feel connected to a young virgin in that situation. But Esther seems to be a very smart young girl. She skillfully manipulates the power structure of the Persian court in order to attain her goal, the salvation of her people. And all along, God is with her. Again, working behind the scenes in all of these little coincidences throughout the book of Esther so that God's people will be saved. Toward the end of the week, we'll be starting up on the book of Job. One of the big questions people have about Job is, where did it come from? When was it written? Well, Job himself, many scholars think, lived at the same time as Abraham. So that would have been about 2000 BC. But the book of Job itself wasn't written, most scholars think, until somewhere around the time of Solomon. Now, we don't know who the author of Job actually was. It was some person who probably had access to oral tradition or possibly earlier written sources. And then under divine inspiration, he composes the book that we now have in its current form. The first couple of chapters are written in prose, just a very straightforward storytelling style. But then the whole long middle section is these long discourses, but they're fashioned in a poetic style. And, you know, it's hard to imagine that everything that Job and his three philosopher friends and the Lord said was all in poetry. I mean, people don't speak in poetry in their everyday conversations. But what we have here is a preservation of the expressions of these people in a poetic form. 
Finally, at the end of Job, there's a short epilogue, which it kind of wraps up the whole story and, and tells you how it all turns out. Now, the theme of the book of Job is really what we call the problem of evil, is why does pain and suffering happen to good people? And it, Job just has such a practical component to it that how do we think about our own pain and suffering or the pain and suffering of others that the righteous even have to endure difficult times. And it really lays out the closest thing that we have in scripture as a theology of evil, pain, and suffering. And so you'll want to look for those themes as you go through the book. How is the book telling us how to think about evil, pain, and suffering? So this week we'll be looking at chapters 1 to 7. So that's going to cover the prologue. We're going to be introduced to Job. And then we'll be introduced to Job's testing. We're going to see Satan approaching God right in the throne room of God. In such an unusual situation where we have Satan in the presence of God and, and asking for access to Job, all kinds of interesting theological questions being raised there. And then we get to the dispute section of Job, and that's chapters 3 to 27. And that's where Job has this, this opening lament in chapter 3 about his situation. And then we have these speeches. There's three cycles of speeches between Job and his three theologian friends that come to comfort him. And we're going to look for these three cycles of speeches. So we'll start the first cycle this week. And so one of his friends will talk and then Job will reply. And then another friend will talk and Job will reply. And then the third friend will talk and Job will reply. And then that cycles again like that two more times. And one more thing to just mention about Job's friends. As you read their words, keep in mind that not everything in scripture, although it's inspired, doesn't mean that it's something that God agrees with. We can think of many stories where things happen and we know that this isn't God's will. This isn't what God agrees with. So when we get to the book of Job and Job's got these friends that come to see him, we have to sort of sort through which parts of what his friends are saying are consistent with what we know to be about the character of God and which parts of it are their own speculations or their own theological constructs that they're using to try to comfort him. And so that can be a little bit confusing at times because you're, you're like, okay, now who's speaking here and is this consistent with scripture or is this Eliphaz's own opinion of how the world is and why God does the things that he does. Well, that's all for now. And if you haven't already done so, make sure to pick up the next installment in the Route 66 Study Companion. It's a great way to record your thoughts as you're working your way through Scripture. There's blank pages in there. and There's also the sermon notes uh, for Pastor John's sermons each week. And you can just keep everything all in one place is a very handy way of doing it. And you can just have a wonderful record at the end of the year of of your your thoughts as you've gone through scripture. Even if you just write down one sentence every day as you're, as you're reading, one impression that you had or one thing that you learned or one question that you had, 
when you look back over the course of the year, you're going to really see how amazing this journey has been. And I'm glad I'm on this journey with you, Grace family. There's nothing I enjoy more than talking about God's word with God's people. And I look forward to doing it again next week with you. Shechem Coliseum and Jerusalem City is not a pretty sea. Mount Nebo, 